Hi everyone, welcome back to another podcast. I'm your host, Max Shannon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Raul Powell. Raul is the co-founder and CEO of Real Vision Group, on top of being an economist, an investment strategist, and publisher at the Global Macro Investor. He's also previously held roles as portfolio manager at GLG, one of the largest hedge fund managers, and also head of European hedge fund sales at Goldman Sachs. Raul, thank you for coming on. Um, can you please explain what Real Vision is? Yeah, Real Vision is a at core a financial media company, but but more importantly is why we built it. So my background, as you've just explained, is financial markets, and I'm you know an insider's insider. You know, at Goldman, the hedge fund industry, I grew up around that industry. You know, and that was one of the most powerful areas of all of finance. Um, I then ran my own hedge fund. But I, I then started writing macroeconomic research and investment strategy, Global Macro Investor, um, when I kind of semi-retired and opted out the rat race and I was living in Spain. The financial crisis came along. I saw it coming. Most of us or many of us, particularly in the hedge fund industry, could see what was happening. I wrote about it, kind of predicted it and told as many people as I could. I didn't have access to mass media then. Um, I was kind of an insider's insider. And people would come up to me and say, why didn't we know? And yeah, people's lives were destroyed. And I'm like, yeah, why didn't people know? I understand why the banks didn't tell people what was going on, but the media did a bad job of it. And so that made me think that maybe I should do something. Then came the European crisis, 2012. We almost lost Europe. I was in Spain where we almost lost all of our banks. Um, and the... ECB forced a loan onto Spain over a weekend for 19 billion euros. If Spain hadn't taken that money, the banking system would have shut down on Monday morning. It was so bad that we had to buy a generator at the house because we'd seen Cyprus go bust. And, you know, we had to buy food, worrying about what could happen. And again, I predicted a lot of this and, you know, a bunch of us in the hedge fund industry made a lot of money from it. But... People again came to me and said, why didn't we know? You know, I saw people's grandmother's money in banks in Spain being converted to preference shares and then the bank going bust and losing all of their savings. And I'm like, this is not right. The same time Occupy Wall Street started, where, you know, at that point, it was the millennials that come out of university, realized there were no jobs and were angry what had happened and seen their parents financial livelihoods get destroyed. And I knew I had to do something about it because the issues in the global economy were not fixed, which is the issue of too much debt, the bad demographics that we've got, and a whole bunch of other things. So it came to me that I could start a video company um, because YouTube had kind of just started over that period. Video was becoming the big, big medium. And I thought, if we start a subscription-based media company, and interview the world's most famous hedge fund managers and give people access to the same information that they get, well, that's going to level the playing field. So therefore, there's less than an excuse that they screwed me. The idea is give you the information that you need. So that was Real Vision. We launched it in 2014. It started with you know interviewing the world's most famous hedge fund managers, investment strategists, analysts, but not the ones who necessarily work for the banks, but the independent thinkers, the people who really added value. Um, and then it's broadened out. It's, it's a big community now of 
of people, you know, it spills out all over Twitter. Everybody discusses finance and crypto. And, you know, we're there to help people understand the big macro trends, what's going on, you know, where the opportunities are, where the risks lie. And we don't have opinions. We just bring amazing people, the world's smartest people there. And so, look, pick their brains. It's all there for you. So that's basically what we're doing. I think um, just to go on from what you said and from people who don't know uh, about Real Vision, what I really like about Real Vision is instead of maybe you hosting a podcast or instead of someone from Real Vision hosting a podcast, you you have two independent thinkings chatting on this platform and it's hosted on Real Vision. Um, Peer to peer. Nobody else does because everybody wants to be the star. We're like the information is the star. Yeah, let's get the smartest minds together to talk about it. Yeah, that's 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 what I think is really cool, and no one else has, I think. Um, but can you describe the narrative currently behind Bitcoin and Ether? It's moved around a lot. the The, the narrative is generally that Bitcoin is the store of value because of its qualities of the twenty one million, the issuance. Um, how hard it is to mine. There's a whole bunch of things that make it the most robust, safe, secure, valuable single asset, which is how it's valued today, over a trillion dollars. Ethereum is basically the internet of value. It's more of a platform of which you can build everything, like an app store, because there came decentralized finance, DeFi, which everybody watching this is the future of all finance. It's where NFTs came. And NFTs are going to change the world in many ways. It's also social tokens and all tokens, you know, things like real estate is going to get tokenized. Most of this is going to happen on Ethereum because it's it's very programmable and it has attracted a huge collection of talent, of developers, thinkers, business builders, entrepreneurs and investors. So you've got these two things, they're different things, but they both have a value. One is basically an entire network of the future of the financial economy, plus maybe the economy itself. And the other is kind of a network of this pristine money. Okay. And um, you just mentioned money, but but what does the future of money look like? (laughs) That's a big question. So the future of money looks like At a macro level, more of the same, which is fiat money, ongoing need to print money to service the gigantic debts at both public and private level. There is no way around it. There's no defaults that can happen now because it's all too big. The world has never been this indebted before. It's 400% of GDP in debt. The US is the most indebted economy as a percentage of world economy in all history. And it's true of Europe, China, Japan, Australia, Canada, UK, everybody. So we've got these massive debts. So fiat money allows you to print more of it. So the less scarce it is, the less valuable it is. So you can debase currency to make it easier to pay off the debts. So that's at top level. That's not going away for now. But what is happening is a parallel financial systems being built in front of our eyes, which is in the crypto world. And that financial system is is growing at a pace twice the speed the internet grew with the same number of users. 
So back in 1997, the internet was growing at 63% a year in terms of number of users. Um, it had 150 million users in 1997. Crypto has 150 million users today. It's growing at 113% a year. It's the fastest growing of any technology in all recorded history. And its job is to completely build a parallel financial system from the ground up. And it's comprised of no one person with a vision. It's comprised of millions of entrepreneurs, investors, people. So within that, we're creating a new system of money. We've talked about Bitcoin being something that we can hold our, our savings in that will have money over the long term. It's still quite volatile because it's still early, but it gets compensated by the returns over time. But we're also building payment systems, instantaneous payment systems, where I can pay you, you know, 10 quid just from a mobile message, goes on crypto rails, completely secure straight into your wallet. We're going to build, you know, we're still using wallets and credit cards. That's all going. We go to the bank for a loan or borrowing money, lending money, interest rates. That's all going into DeFi. We have memberships and subscriptions. That's all going to get tokenized. We're going to basically upend every major business model that involves money. We're also doing things like many people listening to this now will have grown up around the gaming industry. You know, many people would have been on Fortnite, hung out with their friends. It's a normal world, right? That's actually the metaverse. And the world is moving that way. And people are learning that digital assets in those worlds can be put on a blockchain and have value and be transferable. So those things that you collect in a game suddenly have real value. So you're basically getting paid for your gaming abilities. We've seen the rise of Axie Infinity. So, so when you say, how is money changing? It's literally going to change everything. The other thing is the central banks have figured this out. So they've gone, okay, we need to introduce central bank digital currencies because the world is now digital. Everything is digital. So they're creating their own mechanisms, which is also going to change how they run fiscal stimulus. Because once you've got individual people with wallets, you can give individual transfer payments for different things without all of the bureaucracy and cost. So central banks really can't do anything except print money because interest rates are zero everywhere around the world. So now they've got a new tool, which is blending fiscal and monetary policy together. So this is the largest change to the system of money in all history. And then when we go back to blockchain, why has this enabled it? Well, all the system of money basically came out of, not all of the system of money, the system of accounting came out of Venice in the Renaissance, and they invented the dual ent entry ledger system, which is the standard you know, system. Blockchain changed that and made it a multi-party authenticated system. So that allowed all sorts of different stuff to be done where you're not relying on the trust of two parties. So you create trust across the internet with people you don't know. So yeah, it's, it, it's beyond big. And this is the biggest change you're ever going to live through. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. You mentioned that essentially Bitcoin is a store of value. And then you said that you mentioned many different layers of money. You mentioned from a macro standpoint, uh, you mentioned from uh, also from a payment standpoint and, and many other factors as well. Do you think the Lightning Network 
changes Bitcoin's narrative from a store of value, uh, or does it actually enhance Bitcoin's utility? It enhances it enhances the utility and broadens out its use case. So now we can because remember the white paper originally called it a peer to peer um, um, system of money transfer. That didn't happen because the Bitcoin blockchain was too slow because its reliance on excessively strong security made it amazing for a store of value, but not great for a payment system. But Lightning Layer, which is a layer built on top, that allows these fast transactions. Now, all of the blockchains will have the same. And in the end, I'm going to send you that 10 quid, and we won't know if it's gone across on XRP, Bitcoin, Ethereum, central bank digital currency rails, and we won't care. Like you and I are talking on Zoom. I have no idea what computer you're on, what your IP provider is, you know, what your internet, nothing. And it's irrelevant. And on this theme of uh, Bitcoin, um, what's the timeline for institutional adoption? And and what's the viability for having uh, Bitcoin on a balance sheet from from a corporate perspective? So let's look at a bit of the adoption story. As I said, it's the fastest growing adoption of any technology in all recorded history. Institutional adoption is happening at scale as fast as possible, and the regulators are trying to catch up. When I look at it and try and scope it out and you know, explain to anybody who's starting their savings journey or investing journey, you will never be given this opportunity again in your lifetime. This never happens. And what am I talking about? Here is a $2 trillion asset class, digital assets across all of the tokens. All of the other major asset classes like global equities, global bonds, they're all like between 150 and 350 trillion. When you get to the derivative market, it's one quadrillion and the FX market is functions multiples of that. So I think the probability is that this becomes a $200 trillion market within the next 10 to 15 years. Considering how fast the adoption is, So you've got an entire asset class that's going to go up 100x. It's never happened before. Certainly not in 15 years. So the wealth creation opportunities are gigantic. And what drives this is that these are networks and they have network effects. So what is a network effect? Metcalfe's law is the great way of valuing networks. It's the number of connections, people on the network. So in this case, people who own Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. And then the interconnectedness. How many use cases are there? Who's building on top of it? So Bitcoin now has now got the lightning layer. So it's starting to get a, gain more network value. The network value was really valued at that store of, store of value argument, but now it's building. Ethereum's got tons of growth on the network. So it's accelerating in its value. So that institutional adoption is all part of the same story um, and it's going to happen at a lightning speed. Sure. And with this adoption, how important are ETFs to the to the crypto Bitcoin space? An ETF for people who aren't fully aware is a is basically an equity, but it can be made up of a basket of different things. It makes it just easy for you to invest in a theme like Kathy Wood's ARK Invest uh, invest in groundbreaking technologies and you just buy one share which is an etf 
and ETFs can also be attached to things like gold. So you don't have to physically buy the gold and store it. And so there is going to be a launch of a crypto ETF. Now, if you're in the UK, you know how difficult it is to buy Bitcoin sometimes. Some of the banks don't want to deal with it. Yeah, you can do it with your Revolut account, but it's not easy. So it has been historically easier, particularly in the US, to buy equities. In the UK, people aren't big equity owners, really. They're more likely, I think, to go and buy the underlying tokens um, because it's driven by young people who are not phased by the technology of figuring out wallets and stuff. The US is driven by the registered investment advisor market, the RAAs. And those guys just want it easy because they don't know how to custody of this stuff. It's a bearer asset. So once the ETF comes, it'll drive a massive amount of adoption. And it doesn't really matter that people own it in that format. It's just a different way of owning the Bitcoin because the ETF has to own the Bitcoin. It may own the underlying futures contract that trades in the CME, but those futures contracts are arbitrage into Bitcoin. So it, it all ends money going into Bitcoin and Ethereum. So it's, again, just another way of driving that adoption. And when it comes, which I think is in the next couple of months, there's going to be a wall of money coming in. And particularly in January, when everybody does their asset allocations and what do I want to do for this year? They've got their new shiny P&L. They want to put some money at work. And um, my guess is crypto is going to see a huge run because of it. And, and with that wall of money, uh, would you buy Bitcoin and Ether now? And, and if not, which price would you buy that? Is there such thing as intrinsic value in the crypto space? So intrinsic value is driven really by network effects. You can use discounted cash flow models on Ethereum because it generates fees. And it's about a P of 15 or 20. You know, it's low compared to a tech giant that's growing at the speed it's growing. So it's pretty cheap by that model. Bitcoin's less easy to value because there's less cash flows. Um, but really, Metcalf's law is the right model. And you can pretty much model it out. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. Um, and anybody wants to see, just look at my Twitter account. And you'll see examples of me showing Metcalf's law. Um, and it works for all the cryptocurrencies. They're all the same. Um, so at a macro level, Bitcoin peaked in, Mar in March and Ethereum peaked in May of 2020, uh, 2021. It's been trading sideways in a big volatile range. It's about to break the range. Usually when you've been consolidating for six, seven, you know, six, seven months, and then you break out with all of this adoption going on, tends to be explosive price rises. So my, my personal hunch is we've got a period of explosive price rises coming. Okay, and um, now let's, I, I think it's important obviously to speak about Ethereum as well. Can you explain Ethereum 2.0 and yeah, the, the effects it'll have on its price? So both Ethereum and Bitcoin both use a, a mechanism for mining called proof of work. So that's how you create the coins. That requires computational power to solve these crypto puzzles. And for that, you get rewarded. You need huge computing power to do it. Ethereum is moving away from that towards something called proof of stake. And proof of stake is you validate the network by if you own some Ethereum, you can stake it and get a yield. I deposit it, get a yield, and all of those people secure the network. It requires infinitely less computing power. So it makes Ethereum faster and cheaper. 
But it also creates some other magic is they made another change called EIP 1559 that went through in June, which was reducing the supply of Ethereum by burning tokens, burning some of the fees that the network generates and buying tokens back. So it reduces the supply. By the time we get to ETH 2.0, we will have the attributes where probably broadly over time, there's going to be less ETH every year being issued than is being burnt. So you've got a negative supply asset. Everybody who studies economics understands the law of supply and demand. So you've got an exponentially adopted network, which is Ethereum, with a reduced supply every year. That, that only ends up in large price rises. Now, it won't always, you know, there'll be bear markets, it'll fall a lot, but over time, that's an incredibly powerful tool. Okay. Can you touch on your current portfolio allocation? So I started, you know, I've been in, investing in Bitcoin since 2012. So I've been early in this space, in and out. I kind of got it early on, but never, I mean, I should have just held, you know, that, that, that hodl idea. I never did that. I didn't get that part yet because it was too risky still. We didn't know what was going to survive, what wasn't. So March of 2020, the macro and crypto worlds collided. You know, I knew that in a the worst economic downturn, probably since the 1930s, maybe more, um, the central banks were going to print as much money as possible and therefore scarce assets were going to be valuable. And so this was the time for Bitcoin. It had been consolidating around 10,000 forever and then it, it broke higher. So I put all of my life savings into Bitcoin. Then by about October, September last year, I looked at the chart of Ethereum versus Bitcoin. I saw that the Bitcoin community would attack people who talked about Ethereum, yet I knew there was a huge amount of smart people that were much more focused on Ethereum. So I dug into it. People would say, it's valueless, it's going to go to zero. And people had these complex models of why it would go to zero and why it was worth nothing, why it was just basically like water, a utility worth nothing. And I, I thought, they're wrong. This is Metcalfe's law. And if it works for Bitcoin, it'll work for Ethereum. I put the two in a model and lo and behold, works perfectly. And in fact, so perfectly that Ethereum is exactly following Bitcoin in the 2017 cycle. I'm like, wow. And I subsequently found out that Solana is exactly following Ethereum from the 2017. They're all, they're all entirely driven by network adoption. So when I saw that, I started switching my portfolio into Ethereum or buying more Ethereum. Then I realized that what usually happens in a bull market, there's a lot of other innovation going on. There's a lot of crap and we don't know what's what, but you need to get exposed to some of that innovation because that's where the really big returns can come to. So I started buying a basket of, of different protocols, bit, bit of DeFi here, you know, a bit of, um, um, a bit of kind of ETH competitors that were faster, layer ones, and just other thematics. Put them all together, equally weighted basket, because I didn't know. Mm. And then over time, I just added to my ETH and then started selling my Bitcoin or exchanging it for ETH. So I'm now, so I went from 100% Bitcoin to like 80% Bitcoin, 70% ETH to 30% Bitcoin, 50% ETH, 20% this other basket. 
I'm now at 5% Bitcoin, 70% ETH and 25% the basket. Wow. Okay. Um, and, you know, as we know, Ethereum and, and as you get further up the kind of the risk spectrum or the, or the yield curve, essentially, um, it becomes more volatile, vol- um, ultra more volatile than, than Bitcoin. Uh, with this kind of, you know, upcoming financial crash or however you want to say it, does that affect your portfolio allocation? When do you think this will come? I don't think there's a crash coming. I think the okay, that I think we will get an economic slowdown. Um, but the answer to an economic slowdown is print more money, sure, and do another fiscal stimulus. Government spend more money. That's a good backdrop for crypto. Mm. Um, so I think we're in the right point of the risk-taking cycle. That basically everything will work. But as the mania develops and humans love a good mania and you know anybody should read manias crashes and panics to understand the history of manias then you want to start moving away from the riskier stuff and getting closer to the safer bets which will be ethereum and bitcoin or even just putting on stable coins and getting a yield of you know eight percent sure. um, so understand that all of these altcoins some of these projects may be amazing they could be the new ethereum in the next cycle we just don't know. You know, sure, things like Polkadot and Terra are likely to be big participants in the future. But some of the other things, we just don't know yet. And that's okay to speculate on them, but we are speculating at that point because we, we just don't know because they haven't got network effects. Sure. Um, but some of these have, like Solana's got network effects. Okay, so what are your price predictions for Bitcoin and Ether? So I think... With certainty, I think that we hit with certainty, as much certainty as I can muster. Um, I think we hit at least two hundred thousand in Bitcoin and twenty thousand in ETH, and it may even do that by the end of the year, maybe a bit later, maybe into March. I think the cycle probably extends to March, maybe even to June, but I think there's an upside possibility of four hundred thousand and 40,000. So it's possible, I'm not saying it's the highest probability, but I think because of the institutional adoption, the ETFs, the ease of access, that how much has hit mainstream media, how few of your friends around you own this stuff, and how many of them were gonna panic in, in a big bull run thinking this is my chance to make money. So I think it's gonna get crazy. Is it too late to rotate out of Bitcoin to Ether? No, I mean, Bitcoin's been having a decent run. The chart pattern is a wedge formation. Um, it broke out, i.e. Ethereum. It's been in this wedge formation. It's come down to the bottom of the wedge. It's usually would suggest this is a great time to do the switch um, into ETH. If you think, if you agree with my conclusion that ETH looks like it's going to be the asset with more network effects for the time being, my guess is, you know, ETH versus Bitcoin goes up, you know, 100%. So I, that relationship changes significantly. Okay, so let's talk about, um, you know, the meme economy. Do you think this is here to stay? Um, yes. Or yes. is it just You've, financial mania? Max, you grew up with memes. You understand them. You understand digital assets. You also intuitively understand something that the old baby boomers don't understand, which is actually the power of crowds can can drive results. I mean, that's what TikTok is, right? And it does it to the music industry. The, 
the power of crowds on Wall Street bets with, let's say, GameStop was really two things. A bunch of people with different skill sets saying, I'm looking at the same opportunity and here's my view. And maybe one guy was an accountant and one guy was a financial analyst and one guy used to work at GameStop stores and whatever, right? That becomes a hive mind of information where the crowd makes a better decision generally than individuals may do. And then other people piled onto the trend. I think that's here to stay. That's basically what hedge funds did for years. So I think the crowd has an edge these days because you've got access to things like Real Vision, where you can actually do proper analysis without having to work at an investment bank or a hedge fund. So I think it's true of the meme economy as well, because people understand the value of a meme. And they also understand that the value of meme sometimes just disappears. And the younger generation are risk takers. They're using options, um, particularly in the US, and it's all a YOLO bet because if not, everyone's pretty screwed. You know, what are you going to buy? The equity market, all-time high valuations, the bond market with all-time low yields, you know, property, which is un unaffordable. Mm. So it's kind of the fuck it, let's go for it approach where everybody's learning risk management. But I think because of gaming, um, people are bigger risk takers than older generations. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. People will find their own way of taking risk. Options are a good way because you can only lose what you put in. So, sure. so I think this is here to stay, and I think it's a structural change. People point out the rise of option trading in the US, and you see these charts, like it's a speculative mania because of so much op. I'm like, no, you've just put, you basically financialized about, in the US alone, about 85 million millennials plus maybe 30 million Gen Z, all in one go, and giving them the ability to trade options, of course the volumes are going to explode because they love taking risk and they kind of understand it from the gaming world. Okay, I think this is a good transition um, to the metaverse. You, you've already explained some of it, but I think within that is something you coined, and I, I think you should actually trademark it, but um, uh, culture as an investment. Can you explain what that, that is and just and dive a little bit deeper, please? So you can now tokenize everything. And the big breakthrough is coming. We're seeing it with NFTs, and we're going to see it with social tokens that people aren't yet fully aware of. But basically, let's say you like Nike. You can now buy Nike NFTs of shoes, which you own, much like you would do with, the, with rare Nike trainers now. You can own them in your own right as an investment, digitally. And... Everybody's younger understands, yeah, of course, because digital goods have value, right? So that's fine. And you can transfer them and sell them and trade them. And you have the rights to use them in the metaverse. So as everything gets towards 4K gaming standards and we can start building great avatars, we will be buying clothing, stuff like that. So, so now you're, now Nike becomes interesting because it's a cultural investment. But on top of that, imagine if the Nike community tokenized. So you're now creating a token economy around Nike, which is not that equity, but it's the value of being in that community. And if you think of Nike, it's like the music community, the sports community, the um, collector community. There's a whole bunch of communities that all around Nike as a brand. 
So if you're able to own a token in that community and remember the thing about network effects, if you can drive network effects, bring more people, build businesses on top, you know, maybe you build a, a, a Nike NFT store, you can do that on top of this network. What you're creating is real community value. So now here's a brand that you can participate in, not as a shareholder who just owns a bit of paper, but a community member that you get rewarded for being a good community member with more tokens. And that can happen to anything music artists, social media platforms, um, fashion brands, anything where there's a cultural phenomena around it, movie franchises, cartoons, anything. So what this means in the future is those communities that you're part of, you will generally tend to buy tokens in them or earn tokens in them. And you will end up on your, on your phone with a wallet where things now that are memberships, like Real Vision, yes, you may have a Real Vision membership, but you'll also have your token. And your token, which gives you access to the community, also goes up and down in value. So suddenly you're, you're making money because you like Real Vision or you like Nike or you like Rihanna. That's game changing. But we all know, we all know culture is valuable but it's not currently valued. We also know brand and community is valuable, but it's not currently valued. We have an intangibles thing on a balance sheet, which tries to value brand. This is going to truly value the power of brands and we all get to participate. That's a very interesting point, actually. I think that kind of on the other end of this spectrum is, you know, IPs, you're talking about brands, um, Nike specifically, two that pop into mind for me are Disney, Nintendo, um, which are just cool. ridiculous. Um, how, how does this kind of bring, you know, corporates, big, small, uh, however large, into this space, whether it's tokens, NFTs, but how, how do you think about that? They are all going to realise that the future business model is based around community. And if you don't have a community, you're just another seller on Amazon and Amazon own you. So this is the chance, or Facebook own you, or Google own you. This is the chance for brands to truly engage with their audiences and to monetize together where everybody makes money from developing a deep community where it's driven by value. It's not NFT drops and you pay a bunch of money for it. This is a real community where everybody shares in the value of it. Brands realize this very fast, that this is basically an ability to own their IP and directly share it. So imagine if Star Wars had been tokenized so you release a new film, you can fund the entire film from your token holders, Star Wars token holders. And they participate in the success of the film. And then they'll go out and tell all their friends they need to go and watch it because what they want is the film to be a smash hit. And then maybe from that film, they produce NFTs of characters. Well, you've now got a community to sell them to who want to trade them, who want to keep them, right? That's very different than having to put Star Wars characters in a Kellogg's cornflakes packet, you know, or, or do a giveaway at McDonald's. It's kind of, that's brand devalue, but this is real brand value. How would you advise people my age, or just people in generally new into crypto to go about this space? How can they extract so opportunities? First, first, buy some Ethereum. Because why Ethereum and not Bitcoin? Not have anything against Bitcoin, but Ethereum will open you up to all of the other things going on because it's all being built on Ethereum. 
for the time being. So you're naturally going to go, oh, they're building DeFi on Ethereum and NFTs. And what you'll find is that will give you a broad exposure to space. You know, Ethereum, whether it underperforms Bitcoin, outperforms Bitcoin, or underperforms Solana, doesn't really matter. It'll still do very well. Then you will be able to start understanding some of the conversations that are going on that you'll see on Twitter or on Discord or on Telegram or on Reddit or wherever you hang out. You'll start watching some content to understand more. And then what you'll find is it happens to all of us, because I've just hit the tipping point as well. I'm like, I can't, I can't keep on top of this. I'm like, DeFi, no interest for me, because I came out of the finance world and I don't care about yield. But I get it, and I think it's magnificent. It's going to change the world, but that's not my focus. So good luck with you guys over there. I'm sure you'll make a fortune. NFTs, I'm like, okay, I didn't grow up around the premise that a crypto punk or a board ape yacht should be worth a million bucks. I get it that people do. I have no issue with it. I can't yet figure out which ones of those communities they're building around these NFTs are going to be valuable or not. I own a few NFTs, but just stuff that I like and just to get my toe in the water. But, you know, NFTs, the problem is, is they don't fractionalize down like an Ethereum. So, you know, you say you can't afford it, but you got if you've got 10 quid, you could buy Ethereum. You can't with an NFT unless it's a worthless NFT that comes out. So it's hard for you to participate. But you might find that that's the space that you become the expert on. It could be social tokens when that broadens out. It may be these other protocols because you might be a technology nerd and go, actually, Polkadot, that's the answer. Or, you know, Avalanche or whatever it is, doesn't really matter. So you will find your own rabbit hole to go down. So that the easiest way is start with ETH, maybe even Bitcoin to learn the philosophy of what this is all about, and then find out what interests you. You may be the guy who's just finished his, you know, Masters of Finance and wants to know about DeFi. And there's a whole world to discover. So just discover your own bit. Don't try and do it all. It's now impossible. Raul, that's a great note to end off on. Uh, the last question I have for you is where, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm active and I, uh, uh, I try and answer as many people as possible at Raul, R-A-O-U-L, G-M-I. But the key thing is, if crypto is the future, and I've tried to lay it out here, we built an entire free version of Real Vision just for crypto. And it's, it, I built it as a resource for everybody. All the people who built the protocols, the people who invested in the hedge funds in this space, literally everybody who matters, the thinkers, the people building the metaverse, the people building the social tokens, the NFT guys, they're all on Real Vision Crypto. So go to realvision.com forward slash crypto or realvisioncrypto.com, pop in your email and just gorge on the knowledge that's there. It's engaging, it's fun, it's interesting, and it will really help you navigate what is the future of everybody's life here. Yeah, I mean, I can completely attest that. There's, just to reiterate what Raul said, there's Bitcoin, Ethereum, DeFi, stable coins, crypto ecosystem, protocols, NFTs, you can, you know, you can name it. Um, so that's that's awesome. Thank you. I think we can. Yeah, and it's and most importantly, it's free.